Done. All right. Yeah, so hi, we're going to get started. Um, today we're going to continue on through Vavilov, finish it up um, by going through the concurring reasons. And I also want to show a couple more clips of the hearing. The first one I'm going to show basically right away, and it's a bit of a review of the issue we took with the whole lecture last time about really how do you approach a reasonableness review. And we're going to see that also when we go through the Mason case. Uh, to set up this clip, this is the other amicus curiae. We watched Audrey Bakhtar's presentation previously before reading week. This is um, her co-counsel, Daniel Jutras, who is a um, professor and I think the rector of the University of Montreal. Really uh, esteemed and excellent law professor. And what you see here is him arguing with the court or presenting to the court on that question of how do you go about doing a reasonableness review? What does that entail? And one thing I think is interesting is he starts off by going through some of the various um, formulations, various approaches you might be able to take to a reasonableness review, explains why some of them don't work, engages with the court a bit, and then you see him present the, the idea, which we learned about last class, of reasonableness as a single standard and informed by context. And you'll see some questions from the court that get at some of the inherent frailties of that, that there is going to be complexity and you're gonna to have to deal with it somewhere. And there's a wide array of different um, types of bodies, types of decision makers that might be subject to the single standard. But I think he does a good job of explaining why amongst the various options available, this is the one that uh, makes the most sense. And as we know, he ultimately is successful in having the court adopt this approach. And I like this because it sets up well, I think, the, the concurring reasons, which we're going to talk about next, where one of the main points of disagreement is really around this approach to reasonableness review the level of scrutiny, and especially the idea of scrutinizing not just the outcome, but also the reasons and how that changes the sort of function of the court. So this is a compelling presentation that wins over most of the court, but I think we'll see when we go through the dissent that um, not, the, not the judges Karakitsanis and Abella. So without further, I'll uh, play this clip and then we'll, just one second. Sorry, he's speaking in French right now, so that's the English translator. His voice is deeper than that. judge studies uh, the conclusions of fact of a trial judge, 
he or she positions him or herself in a position of deference. I wouldn't say that the standard is palpable overriding error. I would say that we're dealing with what is essentially an attitude. And in Saint-Germain de Blanheim, I believe, Justice Blanheim wrote the, the reasons and quoted Justice Marisette in the appellate court, who was talking about uh, these issues. So, in my opinion, there are four ways of dealing with reasonableness review. Right. Uh, readily available to me in that context. But I would say there, there's four ways to do reasonableness review. One way is to look for badges of unreasonableness. So once you get to unreasonableness, to reasonableness review, you might want to say, we'll make a list. Right? It's not going to be a complete list. It's just going to be an open-ended test. We'll make a list of the kinds of things that we can see will constitute unreasonableness. And you know from experience that if you do that, this will turn into a checklist for reviewing judgments. And a checklist that will not be that different from the old grounds of review that existed in old administrative law. And in a way, that's just reintroducing through the back door the formalism that you have just kicked out of the house. I don't think that works. I don't think it would be a good idea for the court to do it that way. Failing to take into account relevant factors and taking into account irrelevant factors is still a problem. It's still a problem, I think, and I'm going to get to how that could be uh, inserted into reasonableness review. But I think it would be dangerous for the court and probably counterproductive to say, here's a list of the things that would constitute unreasonableness, and these two would figure in there. It would bring us back to administrative law in the 1950s, where we had grounds of review that, uh, that were quite formally defined and on which people debated extensively. So the second way is to suggest that there is a scale of reasonableness that will vary. And this morning I was in my hotel room and there's, a, there's an espresso machine in my hotel room. And if you open the box, there are little pods in there. And they all have numbers, right? It's number one, number two, number eight if you're really a caffeine addict and so on, right? That's what the scale of review looks like to me. And I don't, I don't think you want to move to a formal level of determination of the standard of review that rests on multiple factors that taken together will bring you to nine different layers of reasonableness. I would not know how to be seriously deferential, less seriously deferential, halfway between deferential. I, I don't think that can be done. Well, maybe the reasonableness is informed by the content. We don't need to get too granular. Exactly. About, you know, establishing different levels. But different cases bring different considerations to bear on what is reasonable. I think that's absolutely right, Justice Brown. That's exactly what it should be. What should be done by this court, and that means that you need a contextualized, single standard of reasonableness, one that will take into account those kinds of things that point to failure to uh, to consider relevant factors, one that will take into account failure to uh, interpret legislation effectively one that will take account of context, nature of the decision-making, and so on. But I come back to my starting point. So if it's contextualized, can it be single? I think contextualizing is... Or is it just a single name that you're giving it? I mean, it doesn't have to be called reasonable, so it be called, you know, review. 
It is review. I mean, it's review, but review that takes a very different starting point. I don't think it's meaningless to say, I can review this and decide for myself whether this is right or wrong. Right. As opposed to, I will review this, but I really have to pay attention to what has gone on before me, look at those reasons, see whether that outcome, those reasons that I have before me are reasonable. And that's a contextualized that on, on that question. I'm sorry? On that question. Meaning? Is that a consideration? Whether it's statutory interpretation or discretionary. Sure, yeah. I think the risk there is, I think it's relevant consideration. It's one element of the context. We can't leave it out I think it's hard to deal with judicial review without addressing that aspect. But that runs the risk of taking you to something that you've done in previous jurisprudence, which is to ascertain what is the range of reasonable answers and see whether the decision fits somewhere in that place. It's hard not to do that. No, I'm, well, yeah, I suppose you have to be conscious of that, mm -hmm. assuming that's a bad thing. Um, but, for example, if you have a, if you have a question that, that is really a mixed fact, but a question of fact about whether this person is, you know, fits within these legal standards such that they're entitled to a benefit or, or subject to, to, to uh, some kind of sanction. Right. right? As opposed to um, a grant, of, a, a provision of a statute granting authority uh, to make delegated legislation or something like that. So I, I think in both cases, yeah. It's the beam in your eye, right? It's not the needle in the haystack. It's the beam in your, in your eye that should count. I was, I was telling my students last week that I was coming here, my class is statutory interpretation. And I can tell that you that must be it's fascinating. <laughs> I, I have to tell you that at the end of the class, there are very few students who think there's a single answer to any issue of statutory interpretation. Obviously, that's something that you're fully conscious of, right? So the beam in the eye, idea. It doesn't take us to faithfully unreasonable, although personally I think we'd be better with that. I, mean, I, I don't want to say that that's not a good submission. But the beam in the eye, right, the attitudinal uh, dimension of this, the posture of respect that we must have for uh, the uh, decisions of the administrative uh, decision maker, I think that's the right position. And it's not meaningless words. You can add multiple words to this, you go Wensbury standard, arbitrary versus, I don't think it adds much to the idea of a starting point of respect for the decision maker. But the question I have is where are you putting context conceptually? Because what I thought I heard you saying is that you don't put context in determining how intense the review is going to be. In other words, it doesn't go to the job that I have to do the, the nature of the job that I'm doing. I understood you to say that context goes to informing what is a reasonable decision. Absolutely. And so it's a question of what the tribunal, the decision maker, had to be keeping in mind as the tribunal, as the decision maker, reached their determination. Have I fit it in the right place conceptually? Absolutely. Nothing to add to that, and with Chief Justice's permission, I'm going to sit and allow Ms. Blotcher to address her. Excuses, I mean, she's going to speak with us because I. All right. Um, so I hope that was helpful to sort of see them grappling through these issues. Um, I think you see at the end, Justice Kara Katsanis, they're trying to just pin down exactly what his position is on where. Um, the context fits in the analysis. Justice Brown taking a sort of more searching analysis of 
um, you know, what really does it mean to take all this into context? How am I still being deferential if I have the full context? Ultimately, of course, Justice Brown is in the majority reasons and Justice Karakatsanis joins in the concurring reasons. And these concurring reasons, as we'll see in a second, really focus on this question of when you have review that questions the reasons that you got to a particular decision, um, are you not significantly degrading the degree of deference you're ultimately showing and inviting a much more interventionist court? Because now the court can say, well, maybe that was a reasonable outcome, but I sure don't like how you got there. It doesn't make sense. We'll see that when we get to the Mason case in, this, in a little bit. Um, and in the Bell Canada case, I'm, I'll point out another element of the dissent or the concurring reasons uh, that talks about the impact of this move away from uh, ordinary administrative standards of review on statutory appeals and towards this appellate standard and how that resonates with an expert tribunal. So that's kind of where we're going and talking about the dissent. Um, just to briefly set the stage for, the, I keep calling it dissent. I mean, that's just my verbal tick. It's a concurring reason because it concurs in the result. However, it's I think of it as a dissent because I can't go to court and quote from that those reasons because they are dissenting on the fundamental approach. They're saying you have the approach wrong. The approach ought to be this. And so just the fact they got to the same place that neither one would have said, Mr. Vavilov, your citizenship is quashed, uh, doesn't really change the fact there's some fundamental disagreement in the substance of the analysis. So there are times where you get concurring reasons that you can quote from because they're concurring and talking about a different issue the majority wasn't really engaged with. And you may say, well, these are concurring reasons, but there's no disagreement with the majority on this point and we can take it as guiding. It certainly isn't the case with these reasons. I would treat them more like a dissent in your mind because that's how they're treated by the courts if you try to rely on them as precedent. So these concurring reasons, sort of interesting um, pair of judges who, who wrote these reasons as Justices Abella and Justice Karakatsanis. Justice Karakatsanis we saw at the end. Uh, Justice Abella, we didn't see in this exchange, but we did see her previously in an exchange we watched a week or two ago. Justice Abella, I think is widely regarded as the sort of leading voice, I've said this before, for a more deferential posture in administrative law, you know, showing more deference to tribunals, letting decisions stand, and animated from the idea that increasing uh, the autonomy of tribunals to make final decisions that aren't going to be questioned over and over again has an effect of increasing access to justice. These are more accessible places to go litigate. Um, so this is a big deal for her, this case, right? This is a, a revisiting of an area that she's done more to shape than anybody else on the court. And she's shaped it towards a high level of deference towards tribunals. And as I mentioned briefly in passing, but I'll reiterate again, probably the high water mark for that deference was those you know, province plus profession cases of Alberta teachers and Newfoundland nurses where in both cases the court said, listen, I really don't care how you got there. If the decision's reasonable and I can see what would be a conceivable reasonable path to have gotten there, I'm going to defer to it. So that's a, um, 
you know, an instance where the lack of justification was not found to be fatal to decisions. Um, she was instrumental in those cases. Now everything's being torn open again with this long three-day hearing. And so, you know, this is a certainly a big deal for a major part of her judicial project. You know, sort of her legacy is at stake a little bit here. Justice Carrie Katsanis is also quite an interesting judge. She uh, is now the longest serving judge on the Supreme Court of Canada, which is seems kind of hard to believe because there's been so much turnover. Um, she was appointed to the court in 2009 and she came from the Ontario Court of Appeal. And at the time, she was actually a rather controversial appointee because um, she was appointed by the Harper government and her husband was really actively involved in conservative politics. And you know she was involved to some extent also, it seems. And so there was a feeling that, and I should say that, you know, certainly a respected jurist, but she was only been in the Court of Appeal for a little while. And there were a number of judges who would seem to have had a much more obvious case for the Supreme Court of Canada than her. And so there was a, um, a feeling, a worry that, oh, are we getting US style political appointees? Is this sort of a move towards um, kind of your, your political allegiances becoming a major factor in a Supreme Court of Canada appointment. And, you know, I'm very happy to say that Justice Kerry Katsanis has behaved nothing like a partisan political actor on the court. Uh, her decisions have been, um, you know, really come from all different parts of the political spectrum. Uh, she's done a lot of really important work and she's now really picked up the mantle of this high deference to admin tribunals. She sort of is now the champion on the court of the Abella approach. Uh, she continues to advocate it in um, you know, case after case, frankly. And so she's sort of the person keeping watch on the erosion of deference that she sort of worries about along with Abella in these concurring reasons. So a sort of interesting cast of characters that might help you sort of get a sense as to where these reasons are coming from because on first blush, sometimes it can feel like the language of these reasons is a little bit outsized for the amount of disagreement that's readily apparent. You know, you have disagreement about what to do in these statutory appeals, and you have all this language about not doing enough, not showing enough deference. But then you think, well, the majority sure talks about deference a lot, and they give a pretty compelling explanation for why they're treating statutory appeals the way they are. So why all the, the vitriol almost? And I think when you uh, delve a little bit deeper, you can start to see where the concerns are. And you can understand maybe by thinking about these two judges' perspectives as to why those concerns struck so such a chord and made them you know, engage in such a sort of strident in a way dissent. Um, and so it's a 73-page um, dissent, right? This is, this is a long and lengthy piece of work in its own right. And they do agree with some fundamental ideas of the majority's framework. They certainly agree the starting point is always going to be a presumption of reasonableness. And they do agree with the abolition of that true question of jurisdiction category of correctness review that we talked about. But they really have three points of departure. Now, the first is on this question of whether you continue to just use ordinary 
judicial review principles when you have a statutory appeal. The second on what you do or, or whether um, the justification, the reasons can be attacked as a standalone ground, even if the decision itself, the substantive outcome is reasonable, whether the fact that the reasons themselves have a flaw can be justification for intervention. And the third thing they um, attack the majority on is a failure to adhere to stare decisis, that they've moved too far too quickly. So I'll go through each of those in a little bit of, uh, a little bit of detail, because I think that each one's interesting in its own right. Um, you know, the, the language that they use really is um, strong at times. They talk about the majority's reasons being an encomium for correctness and a eulogy for deference. And, you know, it's strong. I thought it was strong. I wasn't really sure if it was strong or not because I don't know what encomium means. You know, I don't know if anybody here, is that in anybody's vocabulary? Like anybody? I looked it up and it means like to praise something highly. And it seems like a word that like, I looked a few years ago, it seems like it's only been used recently as the name of a Led Zeppelin tribute album. Like that's the only time I've seen it used in any, by anybody. The, um, the Stone Temple Pilots version of Dancing Days was, was pretty good. And anyways, the uh, eulogy for deference, what are they getting at there? Like, so they're saying, you, you read those reasons. You're like, how are, is that a eulogy for deference? It seems... They talk about deference every other word in the majority reasons, right? So why does this, where are they coming from here? They also, um, you know, kind of take out the old, the old line of attack of accusing the majority of being too dicey-ian, adhering to dicey too much, um, saying that you have this old court-centric view of the rule of law and you need to engage in a more modern, uh, open understanding that the rule of law doesn't mean the rule of courts and can leave room for tribunals to interpret and apply law. And again, the majority, I think, feels like, well, I don't think we're doing that. I think we're, we're trying to leave lots of room for tribunals to interpret and apply the law so long as they justify it in a reasonable way. So, you know, the, um, the minority has an approach, has language that seems to, uh, you know, almost be saying, don't be fooled by the majority's words. What they're actually doing in substance is going to cause a lot of problems. So all this repeated setup, let's now really get to it. Um, the first thing that they are talking about is this question of statutory appeals. So just to make sure we're all 100% on the same page again, statutory appeals are these things where the legislation says a decision of an administrative tribunal can be appealed to a court. Not subject to judicial review, but can be appealed to a court. And the majority said, we are going to now say that those statutory appeals are going to be subject to the appellate standards, correctness on questions of law, palpable and overriding error on questions of fact. And what they say is, in essence, and this is going to be really illustrated, I think, in the Bell Canada case, they say 
hold on. You have assumed correctness for every single tribunal review on questions of law on a correctness standard for every single tribunal, no matter how expert that tribunal may be. So this is that point that we saw was animating the entire standard of review question and animating the justification for deference in that QP case we looked at. That idea that, hey, sometimes the tribunals have more expertise in interpreting the law, interpreting and applying the law, because they're the ones who apply it day in, day out. Or maybe they have specialized expertise that is reflected in the types of people who are on that tribunal, subject matter expertise. And so those types of people are in a better place to resolve ambiguity in the law than maybe the court is. And we might as well let them be the ones who decide it. So they're saying, no matter how expert the tribunal is, if there's this statutory appeal mechanism, you're instantly saying that the court is the one who gets to be the final arbiter with no deference to those tribunals. So they're saying there's a real cost now of this philosophical move away from expertise as being the thing underlying deference. And remember, we talked a bit about the problems of expertise and how do you ascertain relative expertise, whose expertise, et cetera, et cetera. But they're pointing out abandoning it completely can also lead to some problematic results where you have a tribunal that does something day in, day out, has subject matter expertise, makes a decision on how to interpret the law, goes to the court, and it may be a judge with no familiarity with the subject matter, no familiarity with the statutory scheme, no ability to understand the expected repercussions of this decision, and now their decision is final and stands. So we're going to see this illustrated in a few minutes in the Bell Canada case. So I'm going to leave that point there and move to the second big concern, which is the, um, the idea that the review will take into account the justification, the reasons that are offered, and even a reasonable outcome uh, can be overturned if the reasons aren't found to pass muster. And in essence here, the concurring reason says, listen, this is just a slippery slope towards the judges being able to overturn any decision they don't like. Once you start reviewing the reasons and you say an otherwise reasonable outcome is reviewable, this will greatly decrease the amount of deference that we're going to see. And I think that I will not say too much more on this because I think it's nicely illustrated in the Mason case, in a sense. And I think we've been kind of circling around this point for a while. But the fundamental idea being that once you start looking at the submissions before the party, the evidence, or submissions of the party, the, the evidence before the court, looking at the whole statutory scheme, the common law, international law, this, that, and the other, 
There's such a broad array of things that you could find fault with somebody for not having mentioned or not having properly considered. That if you're unhappy with the outcome, it's going to be pretty easy to find something in the justification process that'll allow you to take issue with it as a judge. And so this is where the, the sort of the tension lies between what the majority says, which is still do deference, still don't come to your own decision and use that as a measuring stick, you know, as against what the administrative tribunal did. Um, still be respectful, still, you know, recognize their, their proper uh, statutory role as a decision maker. And this is where the tension is between that, what the majority says, and what the minority is saying is going to happen is judges are going to be sort of encouraged to just come to their own decisions and find ways to, to get there. So this is an area that I think, you know, again, I, I make pitches for this, but the empirical study of law is really valuable. And if you can get some sort of data now that we're five, 10 years, you know, five years out from Vavilov in the next five, 10 years, you may be able to honestly say, yes, decisions are being overturned more regularly. No, they're not. Maybe they're being overturned less regularly. Maybe reasons are getting better and they're being overturned less. Maybe there'll be a, an adjustment period where there's some bad reasoning for a while, but the tribunals get better as a result of their reasons being scrutinized. So, you know, when you have these sorts of predictions that this is going to lead to, um, you know, a particular outcome, more decisions being overturned, uh, I think it's really interesting to try to track what's actually been happening. And there hasn't been, as far as I know, a good systemic review of that. If anybody does know of one, I'd be really curious to read it. But it, it's an area that I think, you know, if you're thinking about empirical study, would be, would be really valuable. So that's sort of the second concern, though, is that it used to be you just had to get a reasonable outcome. Reasonable outcome. Now you have to get a reasonable outcome and you have to put forward a reasoning process that will withstand this whole contextual analysis that the minority worries is going to get pretty detailed and get pretty, um, you know, pretty exacting and pretty tough to, to get through. The third thing that they criticize the majority on is departure from stare decisis. And they say, in essence, look, this was supposed to be a very important case where we clarified some things about the Dunsamir framework. We did away with the true questions of jurisdiction, and we provided some guidance on how to conduct reasonableness review. But instead, you have overruled a whole host of precedents with respect to the statutory appeal mechanisms. And you have set out a new way to approach reviewing a decision, a new approach to reasonableness that's going to, you know, they think, fundamentally upset the, the, the balance of deference in a, in a significant way. On the first point, yeah, I think they're quite compelling on noting just how many Supreme Court of Canada cases are going to be overturned by this move away from uh, statutory, or sorry, this move to statutory appeal mechanisms being determinative of the standard of review. And they point out that for ever in their jurisprudence, 
the fact there was a statutory appeal mechanism was irrelevant to how the court tackled judicial review. They would treat it just like any other judicial review application. The fact that it came by statutory appeal meant nothing to how the court approached their, their task. They would defer if, you know, if, if necessary, and if other things pointed to correctness, they would not defer, and they would substitute their own view of the law. They land this point by saying, you know, here's a list of the recent Supreme Court of Canada cases on administrative law that you have over, overruled, because every one of these was a statutory appeal and every one of these was assessed on a reasonableness standard. And they land the point in a, um, in a particularly punchy way, I think, by saying, and by the way, I had to do a little bit of digging to find all these cases because we didn't even mention that it was a statutory appeal in our reasons. You had to you know, go back through the, uh, through the lower court decisions or maybe even pull out the originating pleadings to even find that out. You, know, you can imagine a law clerk I found another one, I found another one, and, and they put this long list together. And so the court says, look, ordinarily, we don't lightly uh, overrule our previous precedents, and here we're overruling a whole bunch of them in one fell swoop. And we're doing so further with respect to the fundamental approach to the reasonableness review by um, departing from the idea that what matters is the outcome and not the reasoning process that got you there. So, you know, to sort of sum up on these concurring reasons, they say, look, we have a big departure from our precedent. We have this elevation of the, uh, stand, of the statutory appeal context or statutory appeal mechanism being determinative of the standard of review. And we have this new approach to reviewing the reasons and not just the outcome. And all three of these things are, um, you know, uncalled for, unwarranted. And the, the final two of those I just listed are going to push this court towards a much less deferential posture and the implication being that's going to benefit the people who are you know, more moneyed, the more well-resourced litigants are going to have a better opportunity to take advantage of the administrative state with the knowledge that they can get courts to give them a second, third potential kick at the can on any decision that they're unhappy with. And um, you know, the final little shot that I, I can't help but notice and think was kind of clever was they, um, they say, look, you, you justify this statutory appeal standard of review by saying the legislature does not speak in vain, right? The idea being the legislature said this is an appeal. We as the court have to treat it as an appeal. And they say, well, I forget when I'm Paris later, like five paragraphs later, you mention privative clauses and say they don't matter at all for how we approach review in any way. They, we don't do anything with them. They don't change the review one iota, the presence or absence of a privative clause. So they say you can't in good faith say the legislature doesn't speak in vain and elevate you know, the, standard, the um, statutory appeal to being a determinative factor well, a few paragraphs later saying privative clauses are meaningless and we're not going to even consider them. Don't say the words privative clauses to us anymore. So I think it was a you know, clever little, little shot that does show that there's 
you know, could it be some, um, some criticisms that are going to be able to be leveled at almost any approach that you take here? And so, you know, I, I go through this not because this is the law right now. It's not. And I don't think it'll become the law for a while. I think this Vavilov framework is proving to be robust. People seem to be applying it with relative ease. It's changed a little bit, as we'll show you with the um, addition of a new stand or new correctness category. And I don't think there's much appetite to do another revision, another revisit of this. And I don't think that these ideas are going to, you know, become the law anytime, anytime soon. But I think it is important to think about these tensions, to understand these tensions, to think about what the trade-offs are, because that's kind of how I see it is, you know, the majority valued sort of clarity and consistency in a, in a framework that I think just makes a lot of conceptual sense. But there may be some real world consequences for that, which will have to be addressed, you know, perhaps by the legislature, or perhaps by courts being um, learning to be more deferential, despite this contextual reasonableness review. Um, but why I think it's important that you think about these types of things um, is, you know, A, you want to know where the law has gone and to, or been to know where it's going and to think about what kind of arguments you can make going forward. More practically, these are the types of things that, um, you know, I'm looking for when I'm grading an exam. As I talked to you about at the outset, I do really have three broad categories of things that I look for when I'm grading an exam. You know, the one being spotting the issues, the second being setting out the proper legal frameworks, that'd be the Babelhoff majority framework, certainly. But the third thing being, you know, going above and showing that deeper understanding of the tensions and ideas and, you know, underlying principles that animate administrative law. And those are the types of exams that, that really get those top marks are the ones that, that can explore those ideas a bit. So these types of tensions are the kind of things that um, I think it does you good to think about in any event, but certainly for this course and the way I approach exams, it's, um, you know, it's, it is helpful to, to think about these things and try to come to some, some opinion, some conclusion, and try to work that into your arguments and your answers. All right, um, any questions on these concurring reasons? All right, um, so I will, I think, um, I want to show one more clip, but I'll set it up at the break. So what I'll do instead is I'll talk about the uh, Bell Canada case now. And so this is a decision that came out same day as Vavilov. Um, there was a trilogy of cases that all came out on the same day. There is this case, the Canada Post case, and Vavilov. Bell Canada is an interesting one because it illustrates this tension, this problem around um, taking a statutory appeal mechanism to mean that there's going to be a correctness review, even when the tribunal that you're reviewing would seem to have relative expertise vis-a-vis -vis the court in respect of the, the uh, question and statute at issue. I think all three of the cases had quite interesting and memorable facts. None of them were really run-of-the-mill you know, admin law questions that come up day in, day out. This one was about Super Bowl ads. Um, you know, you really, in admin law, you can get the most mundane 
and the most interesting, the most life-changing. And this is sort of, I don't know where this falls. Maybe a Super Bowl ad could change your life. But this one is uh, the CRTC, the television regulator, had a rule um, that allowed what was called simultaneous substitution, which you've all, you're all familiar with this, I'm sure. When you watch a U.S. feed in Canada, you know, you might see like the first little clip of a, what looks like a good high-budget commercial. Then it flips over and then you get like Carpet King or whatever. So that simultaneous substitution is the idea that they can take a feed and they can sell their own ads upon that feed. And this had annoyed a lot of people, and I'm sure you probably remember this, or maybe it still still bugs you, that you hear all this hoopla around Super Bowl commercials, and then you're getting kind of the same commercials you usually get because you're getting the Canadian feed and they're simultaneously substituting in for these commercials that are, you know, the advertisers are paying top dollar. It's a big, big market, but you're not getting to see, you know, whatever it is like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, you know, shill for Dunkin' Donuts. So the CRTC somehow like had the time and inclination to be like, we're putting a stop to simultaneous substitution during the Super Bowl. And we are going to let you see those American ads. So they made an order prohibiting simultaneous substitution during the Super Bowl in particular. You're not allowed to put your own ads in. You have to let us see the big budget ads that are in the U.S. feed. They decided the ads were, they found an integral element of the event. And that was the basis upon which they made that order. And they relied on a section of the, um, of the act, section 9.1, which said, subject to this part, the CRTC may, in furtherance of its objects, so pulling in the statutory objects, require any licensee who is authorized to carry on a distribution undertaking to carry on such terms and conditions as the CRTC deems appropriate programming services specified by the CRTC. So the question is, does this provision allow the CRTC to dictate individual elements of a specific program, what you can show during your Super Bowl telecast? Or is it instead aimed at requiring people to to include or make available a bundle of programming, an amalgamation of programming. And the big example that you're all probably familiar with is um, AP, uh, APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network, is a network that's required to be carried, uh, you know, by cable and television providers. And that's by CRTC order under this section. So that's the kind of thing that had usually been used for this section. And this idea we're going to instead extend it to the Super Bowl seemed to be kind of new and interesting. So what you see here is when you read the case, it feels pretty rote and straightforward. The majority says, 
we are here on a statutory appeal. This is an appeal from the you know, decision of the CRTC. Standard review is correctness. We are going to interpret section 91H you know, in accordance with its object, manner, and purpose. You know, they consider the ordinary interpretation of language, the scheme of the act as a whole, its purposes, etc. But the dissent here is what's interesting, I think. And the dissent, again, Justices Karakasanis, Abella, say this is the problem come to life. You have a regulator who's the expert here in telecommunications. You have a regulator who understands the scope of their mission, the types of things that they need to be able to do to achieve their statutory purpose. And there's ambiguity here. This is you know, one of those infinite number of statutes where there's some questions that arise that don't admit of one clear and obvious answer. So it comes right back to, to QP. Who, who should be making that final call, the dissent says. You know, we think it should be the person with the expertise who lives this day in, day out. And we should be deferring to this type of a decision. That's the dissent. That's not happening under a Vavilov analysis. So it's a obviously low stakes type of fundamental issue. You know what ads you see, some popular interest, but not certainly high stakes. But the point I think is nicely illustrated here, just that when you move to this appellate standards you necessarily are ignoring the expertise of the tribunal when you're reviewing things on a correctness basis. So I just like this case for the you know, fairly simple point that it's illustrative of some of the concerns of the Vavilov dissent kind of come to life. Are there any questions on that case? All right, let's take the break now. I'm going to set up the, um, the clip. And then we'll come back and um, the clip is, is uh, it's an interesting one. It's actually an author that we've read getting a really hard time from the court. But I think we'll see there's some sort of deeper merit in what she's saying that, that um, resonates, I think, in the disagreement between the dissent and the, and the majority. So it should be a good clip. So we'll come back and show that at 1130. All right, so what we're going to watch now, this is, um, this is Audrey Macklin arguing in the Supreme Court of Canada. So Audrey Macklin is a professor at University of Toronto where she teaches admin law. She um, wrote the chapter that we read uh, leading up to Vavilov, the, the run through the history of the uh, standard of review and substantive review. She also is a practicing lawyer. She was involved in the Cotter case uh, with you know, some great success there. And so what I'm, there's a couple of things I want to show this clip for. One is even really great lawyers can have really tough days at court. And you're going to see Professor Macklin have what I would say is a really tough ride from the Supreme Court of Canada. 
And um, you know, it, it's I think helpful to see that it's it happens. It's going to happen to every one of you if you do if you do uh, litigation. She holds her own quite well, but I think that the court drills down. You know, maybe what seems like a fundamental flaw in the position she's putting forward, and um, you know, gives gives her a hard time as a result thereof. But what I think you'll also see is her getting at sort of a, a deeper truth with respect to how you are going to be tackling review when you focus on the reasons and the justifications that are offered, and how. In essence, how how impressed, how much you think somebody's earned to be deferred to, based on how they express the reasons for their outcome. So that is the sort of theme of her of her presentation is earning deference through demonstrating your expertise through reasons. And we'll see the problem with the approach that the Supreme Court of Canada sees, but we also, I think, can have in the back of our mind, you know, the majority's position in a lot of ways does call upon decision makers to sort of earn their deference through constructing reasons that can withstand a, a pretty robust form of review. So let's watch Audrey's bad day. When should a review of court defer and how does the court do deference? The submissions of the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, CARL, uh, addresses these questions in relation to statutory interpretation or pure questions of law. I rely on our factum regarding the category of decision makers who warrant deference, but our remaining submissions do not depend on the court adopted. Our point of departure is this declaration by U.S. Judge Richard Bozer. Deference is earned. It is not a birthright. Now, CARL agrees that decision-makers are indeed partners in a joint enterprise of realizing a society governed by the rule of law. The rule of law rests on the idea of accountability. The exercise of state power through law must be justified to the subject over whom that power is exercised. Then Chief Justice McLaughlin described this as an ethos of justification. So administrative decision-makers are indeed partners not only in the rule of law project of interpreting law, but in the rule of law commitment to justifying interpretations of law. This leads us to the position that deference is earned when decision makers do their job in advancing the rule of law's ethos of justification. And specifically, where decision makers owe a duty to give reasons, they do their job by justifying their decision to the affected party with responsive reasons. I acknowledge there are circumstances where reasons are not required, useful counsels, for example, and elsewhere, or where a decision maker relies or incorporates by reference reasons provided in earlier decisions or guidelines. These are manageable situations which I put aside for the moment. But what are responsive reasons? Well, here is an answer to Justice Moldaver's question from yesterday, where a tribunal is called upon to interpret a statutory provision. Is it bound by the same principles of statutory interpretation as a court? My answer is no. However, reasons must, at a minimum, engage with how the proper interpretation aligns with the objectives of the provision and the purposes and broader policy con context of the statutory regime. But this shouldn't be a tough job. This should not be unduly complex, vague, or an onerous task for an administrative decision maker. 
because it calls on precisely the skill set that this court attributes to administrative decision makers when they interpret questions of law. So in McLean and elsewhere, this court has referred to administrative decision makers' expertise or field sensitivity and how it enables them to, quote, provide interpretations of that agency's constitutive statute that make sense given the broad policy context in which they work. This is the distinctive aptitude that the legislator expects will accompany administrative decision makers when they delegate authority to those decision makers. And if the reasons for a decision demonstrate that competence, the decision earns deference. But if not, not. To be clear, our position is that unresponsive reasons, as I define it here, are not the basis for finding a decision unreasonable. They're the basis for not deferring in the first place. So what do we do when we have unresponsive reasons? Do we send it back? Do we do the job? What do we do? You do the job. If the reasons fail to meet the threshold required to earn deference, then they don't get deference. But where do we get the authority to substitute our own view? I mean, I've expressed to you before that the framework of legality is the business of the courts. But the operation of that framework has been given to the statutory decision maker. I'm on the same page, I think, as Justice Brown. My inclination is to say, maybe you got this legal point wrong. Go back and carry out your responsibilities, your responsibilities, not mine, to apply this. The court has an obligation and a responsibility as part of its complementary function to do what it does well. And that includes interpreting law. You give the first opportunity to the decision maker to do it. They're on notice. If they don't do their job, they've forfeited their entitlement to deference. You're not denying them their ability to do it. But when they don't perform it, they don't earn the deference. What do we do? Move from a reasonableness standard to correctness, just like that? Because that's what you're talking about. The court steps in and does what it feels is correct, like we would do in all appeals, not judicial reviews, on a standard of reasonableness. That's the problem with this kind of thinking, it seems to me. When deference... Reasonableness on the presence of reasons. This is your premise that deference is earned. Deference is earned by justification. That's what the rule of law, the ethos of justification, requires. Not just of courts, but also of administrative decision makers. And it requires it in the first instance, not just in relation to a court, but to the people affected, the parties. That's the duty that decision makers owe to the people who come before them. And when a decision maker has not fulfilled that duty, then they lose any entitlement they have to deference, because they have not played their role in the ethos. They're the cart before the horse, or the horse before the cart, or something. Deference, it seems to me, gets us to a reasonableness standard, which is not a normal standard that courts would necessarily apply. We would look for correctness in terms of statutory interpretation. But now we say, because we're going to bureau deference and so on, and we're in the administrative law field, reasonableness will do. But we'll assess whether it's reasonable or not. And if we find that it's not reasonable, that doesn't seem to me to give us the right to say, here's the correct answer. The court has articulated... But there's only one answer. 
What I'm talking about here, though, is whether you extend deference in the first place. That's a question that the court has been dealing with for some time, through categorical assumptions, through balancing of factors. So I'm just giving you another test for when you assign or when you confer deference. In that sense, I'm not doing anything different than what the court does. According to your template, you're losing deference in the exercise of checking deference. It's to be clear. Analytically, I'm sorry, but we're going in circle. And if we are here in order to help not only lower courts, but tribunals and mostly citizens to get it less complicated, my God, we are not helping at all. I have not taken a position in these oral submissions on the starting point. Is the starting point a presumption of deference, which can be rebutted by not providing responsive reasons? Is the starting point an open question, defer or not defer? And you might defer where responsive reasons are required. Is the starting position a presumption of correctness, which can be rebutted by the provision of responsive reasons? You've heard all of these options before you. So in the brief time I have, I've not taken a position on where you start from. I think analytically the problem is if you start with reasonableness and you say while you're conducting that review of deference, if the reasons are not sufficiently responsive, then you switch into another standard of review and you do correctness. That, I think, is the effect of your submissions. So it's not only you have to pick the standard of review, but then you have to review whether it's still appropriate or whether it needs to change while you're conducting the reasonableness review. It's not coherent. That assumes that you started from a presumption of reasonableness, and I'm taking a position on that. But I think these requirements of showing that, of the decision maker, to show that they have connected to the purpose of the statute and their interpretation of the provision in light of that are reasonably superficial criteria that you can see, for example, are they present in the reasons that the analyst provided in that law? Is that there? If it's there, then you go to deference. If it's not there, then you don't defer. Assuming that, if I may say, I'm not assuming that line officers, as in that law, should have deference. You don't decide the standard of review until you actually get into reviewing the decision and whether it's sufficient to allow you to determine it's reasonable. You are not looking deeply at the substance of the reasons. You're asking whether they meet certain formal criteria for the ethos of justification. Do they explain? Not looking at the quality, necessarily, of the explanation, but do they explain what the purpose of this provision is in light of the statutory purpose? That's what they're supposed to be good at. How is this different from what the court said in Baker, where they applied a reasonableness standard but said it was unreasonable? Well, that was in the exercise of discretion, where I think you, in a sense, the application of reasonableness in the context of discretion calls on a different analytical toolkit. So there, what you're looking at are the balancing, for example, or the identification of various factors and the extent to which and the way in which a decision maker balances them. Here, you're looking for, formally, did they explain the basis of their decision in ways that don't have to meet Rizzo, but do have to say, do what you, the court, have said they're good at doing. 
identifying the purpose of a statute in light of its policy context and, and giving an interpretation of the statute in light of that. It's a formal requirement. They do it, you can then proceed to defer. If they don't do it, they haven't fulfilled their duty under an ethos of justification. One, one quick follow-up question. What, what this seems to do is open the door to review much more extensively. If you're dealing with categories of people who are vulnerable anyway, you're saying now, just take a look at the reasons that's a separate standalone approach for setting aside a decision. What do you do if you've got reasons that are three quarters okay, but one, prob one point um, problematic, or the reasons are great, but the outcome seems to make sense. So I, I, I think what we seem to be struggling with is what is it that you're proposing we do that's different from what we've set out is the, is the approach uh, to reasons. Our position is not that you evaluate whether the decisions are great or not as a matter of determining the standard of review. It's have they done what you say they're good at doing? Interpreting the, have they provided an account of the provision in light of the statutory purpose? And this is a kind of superficial call on whether they've done it. With respect to those many people who go before the courts and you're worried about a prolifer, go before tribunals, you're worried about a proliferation of litigation, what this does is provide an incentive to frontline decision makers to do their job and provide a proper explanation of why they're making decisions to the people directly affected. Ideally, if they do that, there would be less litigation. But the vast majority of people who are affected by these frontline decisions are never in a position to seek judicial review, and they're holding decisions that are empty, hollow, and meaningless. So what this is trying to do is give decision makers an incentive. You want the deference from the court? You show us you've done your job. And in so doing, you will have provided the justification to the person who matters the most, the affected party, that currently, unfortunately, is lacking in all too many administrative decisions. That all right. Thank you very much. All right. So interesting, right, to see somebody. I mean, she's cited by both the majority and the dissent or the concurring reasons in their reasons as an academic. And she gets a, obviously, an exceptionally hard ride. I mean, if the judge says, my God, to you, that's not good. And then another judge says, incoherent. You know, oh, that's rough. Um, I think she does a great job of pushing through and I hope that you sort of saw what I was alluding to that, all right, where did she make the mistake? It's the three circles fundamentally, right? That she was saying the legislature gives this job to the executive, but if the executive doesn't justify its, its um, decision clearly enough, then the court should step in and decide it for them. And that's where Justice, um, uh, Justice uh, Moldaver really got off board. He's like, well, I don't think we have the right to do that. Justice Brown, too, was saying, well, where do we get the right to do that? So there was a fundamental disconnect, I think, at the highest level of administrative law in the idea that the courts would um, be so readily willing to jump in and decide these matters themselves, you know, simply because the reasons had not reached some somewhat nebulous standard of, of adequacy. And so, you know, she's getting piled on there from that one direction. But you'll notice sort of the, the first group of judges who are all in the majority, 
they sort of just, they stop. They know, they're like, all right, we're not accepting this. This doesn't work. This doesn't work with our basic conception of how administrative law is and the role of the court in that more broadly. But then you see at the end, you know, Justice Abella there at the end, and Justice Karakatsanis to an extent also, drilling down on the point of, well, you know, what's going to be the impact of of us really giving the reasons and not the outcome this exacting review. Uh, Justice Abella has this point, if it's 75% okay, is that enough justification if there's one sort of problem? And here, they're sort of tipping their hand as to where they're going to ultimately land, that you ought not to be really reviewing the justification. You should be focusing on whether the outcome is reasonable so that these people who are in a vulnerable position, aren't subject to potential judicial reviews that are you know, going to be um, you know, weighted against them in, in an economic sense. So she, she's getting at, uh, Justice Bella is getting at the substance of her critique of the majority, who I think she would say, you know, rightly took issue with Professor Macklin's proposal because it usurps the role of the executive and gives it to the court without a, a principled basis to allow that. She would say they rightly you know, don't accept it for that reason. But she might say, but in substance, they've adopted her approach of giving the reasons themselves this robust, deeper view, and in so doing, have alluded or have, um, have left the, the principles that we developed and have greatly decreased the deference and predictability and have done so in a way that could result in a decrease in access to justice among the most vulnerable. Now, Professor Macklin, though, you know, with a quite, I think, a powerful submission at the end, makes the point that, like, however you make this, um, you know, this judicial review framework, most people affected by decisions are never going to judicially review them, no matter what the standard is. And so we ought to encourage decision makers to give robust reasons, to explain themselves to affected parties. And I think that submission certainly resonates with the majority in their framework, which much of its impact is to expect more from decision makers and to put them on notice that if you give really lousy reasons incoherent reasons, etc., you know, you're going to be told to go do it again. And really, it's just that last part of the sentence, you're going to be told to do it again, that feels like the big disconnect between Professor Macklin and the majority. Professor Macklin says, all right, if you think it's unreasonable, just decide it yourself. You know, if you think that this, the reasons are no good, step in and do it yourself. The majority says, that doesn't work. We have to send it back for them to do it again. But the, uh, I think that the Justice Abella might say, well, you may have almost landed in the worst of all possible worlds, where you're giving the reasons themselves this excruciating, this is detailed look, and then you're forcing even more process by sending things back and extending the overall process. So it's a, I think it's an interesting video to watch, um, you know, for the pure just litigation of it, as well as for the uh, outcome. Yeah.
It's a great question, and I don't really have a great sense. Um, you know, I think my my gut level instinct is that it has significantly changed tribunal practice, and that they are trying to be more diligent. I think it's slowing things down at the tribunal level. I think that is true. Like I have a um, I have a very grim anniversary where I filed a a response to the CRT sent or the uh, human Re- human rights tribunal. Uh, sent some people who I know who I said I'd help with this something saying sort of tell us why we shouldn't just dismiss your claim So I said, okay, I'll, I'll jump in. I'll write something out for you guys Wrote out like five pages for them. They sent it in and that was two years ago today And they haven't decided it yet And I think that's just in and that's a preliminary motion to dismiss that doesn't the case still has to go ahead um, Two years right sitting on one five-page submission and I think that's not because that thing is so hard, but because there's so much more that's being asked of tribunals now, and they're taking this seriously, I think, most of them are, uh, and are, are trying to increase their, you know, their transparency, et cetera. Um, I don't think there's been a corresponding resource allocation to expand the number of members or the support they might have. So um, you know, I think there's there has probably been some improvement on the outcomes and the reasons you get, but at the same time, some delays in the system that might have been coming out of that. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, how much weight do you put to the fact that um, Justice Abella's decisions and all of these are dissents, and so she can be a bit more radical about what she says because it's not that's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a very astute observation and very true. And you can you can put things in a dissent that you don't have to get anybody to agree with. Whereas if you're the majority, you know, you have to have five, six judges agree with you and then you're going to temper things down a bit. So, yeah, I do think that's that's a really good point that she can be a little bit more transparent in what she's thinking and her concerns than she might if she was trying to craft uh, majority reasons. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, I'm just curious about maybe your thoughts on kind of lumping tribunals and like administrative decision makers into this one kind of homogenous group. Yeah. completely agree that there's something problematic about that and that it's really hard to paint them all with the same brush. And I think the example of CRA or RTB, and you know, those, are, those are good examples, and you can think of very specific, discrete decisions. Like I have a review of the inspector of Dyke's uh, decision for a, um, there's a, a wetland that they're trying to flood again to make it more natural on Vancouver Island. That they make like two decisions that have gone to review ever, you know, and versus the CRTs reviewed all the time. Um, the difference in tribunals is 
so extensive. And so there's, there's really two things that spring to mind for me. You know, the first is, um, you know, what are your options? So one is to have a single standard and try to make it contextually bring in the differences between the CRA and, you know, the inspector of dikes or whoever it is. Um, and that's where we've landed, right? Um, another option would be to have a proliferation of different approaches. And I've seen some proposals that are quite interesting. One being, let's look at the difference between an adjudicative tribunal that's taking an adversarial, you know, uh, dispute between two parties and deciding it. And let's decide, let, let's, let's take that like, a, like a, an appeal because that feels like the kind of thing that we ordinarily look at on an appeal. And let's look at other ones where there's entitlement to programs and permitting and things like that. And that's really more the purview of policy and let's, let's have that a different approach. That seems to be a potential way to start to split things out. But every single thing gets tricky at the margins. A lot of tribunals have different functions. So what I would say the, the real long-term solution that the courts would, I think, identify and rely on, even if it's not that realistic as it's actually going to happen, is legislative. Is that the legislature ought to now be thinking when it creates these tribunals in a little more detail, what kind of review do we expect for these? They can prescribe the standard of review for, for you know, a tribunal and absent a constitutional challenge, that'll be given effect to. And so that's the first you know, the, the first exception to the um, Babla framework is if the legislature set out otherwise. So I think that that would be the ideal solution, would be the legislature thinking a little more tailored about what this tribunal needs in order to function. And there certainly are some tribunals where a whole lot of deference would be really uh, advantageous for sort of a, to deal with the power imbalance. Um, like. With the RTB, it's a it's a naturally power imbalanced tribunal, tenants versus landlords. There are other tribunals where there's not a huge natural power imbalance, and so you know that sort of a concern doesn't arise. So those sorts of considerations, and they could animate more statutory creativity in setting the standard. But um, in order for the judges to impose it, it just becomes so complicated and so so hard to set out something that's either going to not just devolve into a, a morass that's going to lead us to all arguing about things all day, um, but at the same time be properly responsive to the different types of tribunals. It's a very difficult challenge. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Um, well, that's great. So what I'm going to do, we're not leaving Babylon forever um, because you know, part of the next class is I'm going to do a big review of all of this stuff before we depart it, like we did with the, with the um, procedural fairness. And I imagine there's a lot of ideas that individually are starting to feel a little bit clearer in your mind. But once you start putting them all together, it probably gets fuzzy again. So we're going to try to bring it all together next class. But there are a few more stray ideas that we need to pick up on before we do that. Um, so the first one I want to pick up on is this other category where you're going to get a correctness review that comes out of the SOCAM case. So if you remember coming out of Vavilov, they said, presume reasonableness, five exceptions, you know, the legislature said otherwise, statutory appeal, constitutional questions, general questions of law of importance to the, or of importance to the legal system as a whole, 
and competing jurisdictional lines between tribunals, right? Those are the five they set out. In this case, SOCAM, they say, uh, there's one more. There's one more we can think of. Um, as I said last class, I kind of alluded to this little fact that there's a bit of a mea culpa here because they had already recognized this in a previous case, also called SOCAM, called Rogers and SOCAM. They had cited Rogers and SOCAM in Vavilov, and it seems like they just kind of forgot to mention this one. Um, and I give them credit for not, you know, doing what my kids do when you tell them something. You know, I'm like, no, I, I didn't mean that. You know, they, they're, they're honest. They're like, yeah, we probably should include that one too. So this is a interesting, and actually I think potentially important and potentially somewhat of an open door to making more arguments for correctness than they kind of suggested is um, exception to reasonableness. And this is the idea that sometimes the legislature puts the same question to a tribunal in some circumstances and to a court in other circumstances. So it'll make sense in a second when I go through it. So what you have in SOCAM is a question of royalties as we move to the sort of streaming music environment. And the, the specific question is a rather technical one of interpreting a provision of the Copyright Act, section 2.4.1.1. And what it deals with is, do you get a royalty as an artist when somebody makes your work available for streaming and a second royalty when somebody actually streams it? Or do you only get a single royalty based on you know, every individual time somebody streams or uses your work? Section 2.4.1.1 says, communication of a work or other subject matter to the public, which is when you, that's a trigger for a royalty, right? Includes making it available to the public by telecommunication. So it was pretty clear that when it's actually streamed, you know, that, that counts. But is the act of putting it up there in itself, making it available, and is that a royalty requiring action? Kind of intuitively, it seems like you're probably not, right? But, um, you know, you also want to interpret these things in favor of, of the artist. It could have been drafted more clearly in the other way. So, you know, it's an interesting question. Now, what is the big thing here is that copyright can come before the Copyright Board, Copyright Board of Canada, or the court in different circumstances, and either could be called upon to answer this question. So the Copyright Board sets tariffs that need to be paid. So your Spotify or whoever it is has a tariff that's set by the Copyright Board of Canada that it pays, which then is distributed according to a formula. This is purely in the admin law world. But your artist might get sick and tired of feeling like Spotify was you know, ripping them off. 
they could sue Spotify for copyright infringement saying you're not paying enough money you know, for what you're doing with my work. You're violating the law. That would go to the court. That would go to the federal court for a trial. So you could imagine the exact same issue. Let's say Spotify brings a judicial review of a tariff determination saying I shouldn't be paying double tariffs. Meanwhile, an artist brings a, uh, a copyright infringement action against Spotify saying you should be paying two tariffs or two, um, two royalties. You know, you're ripping me off by not doing so. Well, then the exact same question, right? What does section 2.4 or 1.1 of the Copyright Act mean? Comes before either a tribunal or the court as a matter of first impression. The court's not looking at this in a judicial review. They're looking at this in an action for damages. In an action for damages, you're not deferring to anybody. You're, you're interpreting the law and applying it to the facts that are proven before you. So when there's a statutory scheme that does that, that says sometimes this question's going to the courts, sometimes it's going to a tribunal, what does that mean for the standard of review when we are considering a judicial review from a tribunal? And what the court had previously said in that Rogers case was that this is an instance where we need correctness review. This is an instance where it doesn't make sense to say that we're going to let uh, the tribunal be deferred to on these questions. And, and the reason, yeah, go ahead. It's the same legal provision, the exact same legal provision going before both of them. Yeah, it has to be the exact same provision. And so the problem they identified in the previous Rogers case is this. So you got the Copyright Board, Federal Court, Federal Court of Appeal, and the problem really arises at the Federal Court of Appeal level most, most acutely, okay? So the Copyright Board makes a decision. That goes to the Federal Court on a judicial review. Uh, so the Federal Court is applying a reasonableness standard. They are deferring to the Board, right? Goes to the Federal Court of Appeal, as I said a few times, an appeal of a judicial review is just a do-over of the judicial review. There's no deference to the federal court's decision here. You just again question whether the board's decision was reasonable. So if it's the JR side of things, you get reasonableness and reasonableness. Now, if it's an action, for damages, the board is not involved, right? The federal court decides as a matter of first instance, goes to the federal court of appeal, it's an appeal. Ordinary appellate standards apply. It's a correctness review, right? So the Supreme Court of Canada says, this is a weird tension where you can have the exact same question coming up to the court of appeal 
on a correctness standard or a reasonableness standard depending on who it originated with. You see this as a, as a tension. Now, it's not necessarily an unresolvable tension, but it kind of calls out for an answer. Is this really what we want? Is this really what we intend to have happen? So what the court does in SOCAM is they say, okay, let's think about this, but let's think about this in the context of the framework we set out in Vavilov for why we're going to depart from the presumption of reasonableness. Let's see if it fits in one of the two broad categories of instances where we're going to depart from reasonableness. And they say, you know, that's when the legislature intended or the rule of law requires something other than reasonableness. And they say, either way you hack it, in essence, I think that this is a circumstance that we should go with the correctness standard. They said, with legislative intent, this is not the type of question that Justice Moldaver was referring to, where the legislature has said, hey, I want this done exclusively at a tribunal. I don't want the court's involvement. They say, no, the, the legislature has explicitly created this section. And I should say, there's a provision that authorizes uh, an action, a civil case, a, a lawsuit to be brought in federal court for a breach of that section. You know, I, the breach of this act is an offense and people may sue those who breach it in federal court, whatever provision that is of uh, the Copyright Act. So the legislature has invited the courts to be involved, right? And so in that circumstance, similarly to the statutory appeal, we can't say that the courts are, you know, simply fulfilling their oversight function in the sense that they're, they're, they're being asked to do more by the legislature with respect to this scheme. They're being asked to oversee the copyright board, sure, but they're also being asked at times to decide this is a matter of first impression. And so there's not the same force of argument for sort of hands off. This is the property of the admin tribunal. So that's the first kind of pillar that the court relies on to say this can be correctness. The second pillar is the rule of law. And they say, first rule of law just looks sloppy, basically on this diagram that you have same question coming before the court of appeal, sometimes being, you know, deferring to a tribunal, sometimes applying a correctness standard. But the more interesting thing I think they say is you could get some bad dissonance here if the courts and the copyright board started interpreting this provision differently. So let's say the copyright board started saying, Two there are two royalties every single time. The federal court in an action for damages said just one, just one or just one royalty. Get to the federal court of appeal. Well, maybe the two royalties is reasonable. They're going to uphold that. Maybe the one royalty is correct. They're going to uphold that. And there's no real mechanism to resolve this discord. They say within the board itself, 
if you have persistent discord, one going one way, one going the other way, we have a method in Vavilov to deal with that. But that method doesn't extend to the federal court, you know, to the, this other circumstance. So they say we're at putting ourselves at risk of having a sort of persistent rule of law problem of, of dissonance without a really good way of solving it. So they say the thing to do is just to recognize a sixth category, concurrent jurisdiction in first instance over the issue. That concurrent being the courts and a tribunal, and the issue being you know, interpretation of the exact same legal provision. And they say that this is not us, you know, uh, watering down Vavilov. We said in Vavilov that we could recognize other categories. We had already recognized this category previously. Uh, we are affirming it survives Vavilov, and we're affirming it in the context of a Vavilov framework of looking to legislative intent and the rule of law as our bases for doing that. So why I say this is a case of some importance is, you know, they say there's only a few instances where this, this happens, that there is concurrent jurisdiction over uh, an issue as a matter of first impression for both the courts and the tribunals. And I, I wonder if that's actually the case, that there, there may be more instances than they kind of foresee, especially when there's traditional court functions that are given to tribunals, civil resolution tribunal, these types of places. Um, the civil resolution tribunal is an example where the legislature solve this problem by saying in areas where the civil resolution tribunal does not have exclusive jurisdiction, the standard of review on questions of law is correctness. So they, they gave a legislative solution to that. But had they not, you know, I was before the court on a judicial review of a nuisance action. And, you know, the courts have concurrent first impression jurisdiction over the law of nuisance and the CRT is just being asked to apply the common law. So it would feel like even in the absence of a statute, you could make a pretty good argument this exception would necessitate a correctness review there. And I suspect that there's going to be a lot of things hiding in the sort of woodworks where you say, wait a second, there's an argument to be made that the courts deal with this exact type of issue as a matter of first impression in other circumstances. So it's a new exception in the sort of post-Vavilov world that's only been um, recognized for about a year and a bit and hasn't really been fleshed out yet. But I think we may see um, you know, some push on this. And, and broadly, I think whenever there is an exception to reasonableness review, lawyers push on it because if you're unhappy with the decision, you, know, you want to get that correctness review. You don't want to have deference to the tribunal. So that's the SOCAM case. Are there any questions on that one? All right, so I'm just going to really quickly at least start on Mason because I, I do want to have next class nice and full, nice and free. Um, so Mason, you know, I've said this a few times, but I just think it's, it's, the, it's the capsule. It's the Cliff's Notes. It's the can, if you will, of Vavilov. 
It's a really helpful case to look at. Uh, it's dense. You know, a lot of ideas are in there, and there'll be a paragraph on, you know, a topic, and there'll be four sentences. Each one of them unpacks into a paragraph or more in Vavilov. So it's kind of like a roadmap to find the issues. But it's a really, really helpful case to read carefully, especially before your exam. If you can go through the section on choosing the standard of review, and you can go through the section on applying the standard of review, especially the just the broad you know, description of it, and you feel like you get every sentence there, I get that, I get that, I get that, I get that, you're in amazing shape for this portion of the uh, exam at least. So I really recommend that as a case for, you know, to come back to at the end. Um, just very quickly, you know, what happened in Mason is interesting. We're back in the world of immigration and the world of exclusion from Canada on the basis of criminal activity, you know, push panathin was similar. And what you have in Mason, two individuals, both um, accused but not convicted of violent crimes, both seeking refugee protection, both found not to be entitled to that protection because of a section of the immigration law which uh, made people inadmissible for engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada. Now, the question is, and the violence was serious. There was a shooting and there was a, a significant assault, I think, alleged. No convictions. Supreme Court of Canada has before it a, a question as to whether to recognize another exception from correctness. I'll very briefly touch on this. It's relatively obscure. Glad I have this. Imagine this is the immigration board now. There is a rule in the immigration context where on a judicial review of an immigration decision to the federal court, the federal court can certify an issue that they say is important and affects a lot of cases and then that will go up to the Federal Court of Appeal. So in essence, the Federal Court judge can say, hold on, there's an important thing here. The appellate court should have a look at it. I'm gonna certify an issue and you guys can go off and have an appeal. An appeal is usually by leave to the Federal Court of Appeal in these immigration matters. So they're saying, no, you're good to go. I, I, you don't need to ask the Federal Court of Appeal. I say it's important, you go up there. Question was whether that, when there is a certified question, that should be correctness. And in essence, they said, you know, the answer is pretty straightforward. They said, no, that has nothing to do with the project of the um, review of the actual board decision. We're now talking about something that's happened at the federal court level. The, the standard of review is going to stay the same. It doesn't, just because a federal court judge thought it was important, doesn't give me any reason to say that I would change the standard of review. There's lots of important decisions we look at in a reasonableness standard. And maybe the interesting little nuances, they, they clarify again what the difference is between an important question, an important question of immigration law or anything else, and one of these uh, general questions of law of importance to the legal system as a whole. Those things like solicitor-client privilege, cabinet confidence, those things that transcend any one case and go to the basic functioning of the legal system. So they, they say no go on this idea of another correctness standard. 
that's a relatively minor point. I wouldn't, you know, there's going to be a lot of these where the, a new correctness category is rejected. But then they go through the analysis. And the one thing I think is interesting to see in the analysis is, boy, how different would it have been on a correctness standard? And I wonder if it's really the answer is not very much. They go through the analysis and they say, yeah, you know, tribunal, you did point out the principles of statutory interpretation. You did have a look at, uh, you know, the broader statutory purpose, the context, you considered arguments, uh, but you missed three key things and that made it unreasonable. And, you know, it's, it, it doesn't feel like there's a really a ton of deference in this decision. That's sort of my editorial comment on it, that when you read it, it feels like a very searching review that doesn't really believe this tribunal as much of an expertise in this area. And they find a few things that are, you know, solid arguments against the interpretation that the tribunal gave to it. And just really quickly, I'll just say what they are. So they first say, um, this provision has an extreme penalty that you can only get very limited relief from. There's another provision that deals with criminal convictions that has a much broader form of relief available. And so if you interpret any violent crime, even if you're not convicted for it, as falling under this, the category they were relying on a Mason, this extreme category with very limited relief, uh, it leads to a fundamental dissonance because if Mr. Mason was convicted of this crime, he would be under a different provision and have much better opportunities to get relief from being kicked out of the country. So they say this doesn't make sense to interpret it that way. And they also point to international obligations and say that the international treaty that it implements is pretty clear that it's only really serious threats to national security that are the types of things that will exclude you from being able to stay in a country if you're facing persecution, death, et cetera, back home. So um, th with those basic criticisms in mind, they say this decision cannot stand and um, strike it down as unreasonable. And in fact, so there's only one reasonable outcome and substitute their decision. So they do the same thing as Vavilov, where they say only one reasonable possible outcome, so we are gonna impose that. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's an interesting case because it seems to show very little deference being ultimately shown. Despite the fact they do a reasonableness review, what they do in substance looks pretty akin to a correctness review. And so is this an example of sort of the watering down of deference that, that um, Karakasanis and Abella were talking about? Sorry to keep you late, so I'll stop there and we'll pick it up next week.